That's a great play. Shakespeare was in his bag for that day. He was in his bag that day. <laughs> Let me tell you. Do you know that he smoked chewy bowls to get in his bag? Did he? For real, for real. I'm not Is this surprised. Facts? Yeah, they found, they carbon tested some pipes they found in his house and it was, had cocaine and marijuana. Come, our, our bisexual queen icon. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I love it. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we prepared especially for them. I'm Luther, between us chickens, Hughes. I'm Gabrielle Bates. And I'm Duji Tahat. This week we're talking with Ross Gay. Ross Gay is the author of three books of poetry, Against Which, Bringing the Shovel Down, and Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, winner of the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award and 2016 Keithy Tufts Poetry Award. His collection of essays, The Book of Delights, was released by Algonquin Books in 2019. He has received fellowships from Cave Canem, Bread Loaf, and Guggenheim. He teaches at Indiana University. But before we get into that conversation, we have one question from our loyal audience. Nancy Now What asked, I've put together a manuscript. Should I submit it to a book contest? Should I email presses? What should I do? Who should I show it to? Oh, Nancy. I feel this one. Um, so with poetry, submitting to book contests is definitely the most usual route. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I personally am in this boat and I don't really know of many other options besides submitting to book contests. Um, what do y'all know of? I mean, if the homie has the hookup. <laughs> like you know somebody who's an editor at a press. And That's what just... I would imagine. I don't know anybody who's an editor at a press, but I have heard of books being published that way. Mm, like solicited. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I don't, I don't know It doesn't sound like Nancy's way. in that boat. She no. Pro- probably wouldn't be asking this. I am really curious about like the awards culture of poetry. Um, and maybe that's because like my come up was slam and it was like awards, like award driven and reward driven. Um, and so like I have a pretty comfortable sort of relationship to it. Um, and I'm also similarly like well versed in being torn about <laughs> my comfort with it mm-hmm. because like, you know, applying that lens, the capitalist framework on art <laughs> Fuck capitalism. <laughs> Fuck capitalism. <laughs> but I'm also trying to get paid, you know? <laughs> like that's the other thing. So like that 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 thing I'm I'm that tension I'm particularly um attuned to. And I think like that's the thing I wrestle with pretty constantly. It's like, of course I want to win as many awards as possible because like I wanna be the shit. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I want people to see me as mm-hmm. the shit. Um but also like trying to create art sort of removed from that. Um, is also really important. Yeah. There are some presses who occasionally will have open reading periods where you're not having Mm -hmm. to pay that entry fee. Uh, There's probably not going to be a fancy judge associated with it. So you're not going to get that sweet, sweet introduction written, but um, it's an opportunity to get your work read that is outside of that contest model. Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be on a super regular schedule for many presses. You kind of just have to like have your ear to the ground and notice. Um, But that is an option for sure. I think 
now I'm also in the same boat as Gabby. And now you too, Nancy. Um, where, you know, you think you have to submit your first book to contest. Um, I didn't really understand the idea of shopping your book around until I realized you can probably email somebody and be like, hey, I have this book. <laughs> it's these things, doing these things. You look at it, right? Because um, we're so... We really know how to be a poet sometimes one way, um, and that way it seems to be through a book contest, um, which is fine, but also it's expensive. Like, I can imagine yeah. paying, you know, every year, you know, 120 140 150 for book contests if I have a, you know, a low-paying job. Like, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's really expensive to pay for that. And if you can't pay for it, then you're like, well, what do I do next? Um, and so I think, again, fuck capitalism. Um, but, like, don't be afraid to just, email somebody or dm somebody be like hey like i got this really bomb ass book like you should read this book um and just be okay with that um you don't always have to go through book contests just it's just how we know how to be poets sometimes and it's unfortunate even with a world culture like the same way like the only way to get noticed in the world like notice sometimes to win a thousand like thousands of awards you know like 92Y or, you know, Ruth Lee Rosenberg. So, like, it feels like you have to be a poet through these things, but you kind of don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that I... I think because I have been so uh, accultured to, like, winning stuff and knowing that that was sort of available to me, I think that I know how to turn that off. Like, Mm -hmm. I think for me, like, to your point, like, the important part is, like, does your book bang? right first yeah that's the first step is like Nancy get people you trust to read your manuscript give you feedback like that's first step that's the only thing like everything else like everything else is gravy right like Mm -hmm. if your book bangs like sure if you've got the money submit if you know some people like reach out to them like at that point it becomes like a hustle right like the Mm -hmm. game it's just like it's just hustling at that point um and so then it's like sort of like whatever means you have at your disposal, you just like pull that lever um, and get it going. But, but all of that is only possible <laughs> if the, if book, the bangs. book bangs. Also, yes. if contest fees are genuinely cost prohibitive for you, reach out to the press and tell them that. Yes. I yeah. think I would venture to say that the vast majority of presses would be willing to waive that fee for you. So please, please, please don't let that just keep you from throwing your hat in the ring. At least ask. Yeah. Just ask. I think it's the biggest thing. Just don't yeah. be afraid to ask. Like yes. you're, you're submitting thing. That's like a ask anyway, right? That's so our take home message. Like, just ask. Yeah. Just ask. Yeah. I, d- I remember when um, it was like tweet your rejections was trending for a mm-hmm. little while, like mm-hmm. a couple months ago or whatever. I remember like the one thing that really stuck out to me is like people were tweeting the amount of money they had spent on mm-hmm. submissions. It is eye opening. Like, like for people who don't submit to book contests regularly they're not like a lucrative endeavor people who don't who've never published a book of poems like you don't make a fuck ton of money right like no. even in a book contest is like the most that you can make and that's it's like, like a thousand dollars right mm-hmm. it's a lot which is like a lot yeah that's a that's a lot that's a lot in prize money and there are people who spent like up to five figures to get their book published mm-hmm. for those who don't know it is like 25 dollars to 30 dollars a pop right. to submit your manuscript to a contest Right. Which, again, points to, like, does your book bang? Cause, like, <laughs> yeah, because if it doesn't, save your money. Like, maybe don't spend <laughs> a cool 10K on trying to get your, like, not banging book out oh, in the world. Oh, ouch. I mean, if you don't bang, you don't bang. There's no reason to hold punches. But there's so <laughs> many different types of bang. 
also that like contests are judged by different people every year yeah um so it's like just because you're not winning the contest doesn't mean the book doesn't matter exactly so maybe one year a person didn't have you didn't like your book the day they read it right like mm-hmm. doesn't mean your book is bad necessarily right mm-hmm. it just mean like maybe make sure just a different person or stuff like that yeah no biggie at the risk of like completely derailing the conversation <laughs> my question to y'all oh <laughs> uh, are you nancy <laughs> are you nancy do you? <laughs> girl <laughs> okay. to say. No. derail um so i think my i'm really curious about um as people who've all said on this podcast like fuck capitalism there's a certain strain of people who say fuck capitalism that like think that any sort of trend is like inherently bad mm. that like sort of like the monolith of poetry or like the the ways in which we know how to write poems that is informed by our peers sort of Mm -hmm. like at large Mm -hmm. is like inherently bad. Mm. And so actually the fact that it cost me $10,000 to get my book published, all of these like rejections are actually further evidence of the fact that I know what I'm talking about because it's Mm. so not like what everyone else is talking about. And I'm just curious if you have any like thoughts on that. I think in many cases and i'm just thinking about people i know who i won't name whose work does go very much against the grains of contemporary trends it does tend to take them longer to start publishing like individual poems and journals but once an editor is willing to take a risk on it it's sort of a tumbling effect um i think it just takes longer to kind of get your foot in the door um so it is a longer game but um but everyone I know gets there as long as they keep throwing their hat in the ring. Um, I think people often forget that trends and poetry isn't a new thing. Like we have the whole imagists, we had Harlem <laughs> Renaissance, we've had you know mm-hmm. the trends of romanticism. Yeah, we have we have, we have entire <laughs> history, history on like trends and poetry, and so I feel like people are forgetting that their faves <laughs> were part of a trend so it's like the whole Save thing like oh people writing like this all the time it's like girl this is nothing new like yeah we've been discussing politics or poetry for generation generation decades so like it's just now i think people are conflating that with the social economic climate of today and so like we're conflating these things mm. because race seems to be a big thing now and politics seems to be a big conversation across all genres more openly and more like blatantly and so people are conflating the climate with art and poetry and thinking it's a new thing, but no, no, no. This has been happening before we were born, before Nancy was born, Obama was born. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, we can't think we're outside of that strain yeah. because it's been it's been the same strain for yeah. generation decades. Yeah, I think so often about the idea that like poets are always responding in time, like are fixed in time, and they're like they're mm-hmm. always writing in that particular time, mm-hmm. and like whatever sense of timelessness or like big capital P poetry that like we have in mind is actually just like that hyper specificity. And like, Mm. so to me, I'm like, again, as someone who says like fuck capitalism on the reg, Mm -hmm. like I am also at the same time, hyper skeptical of individuals who would assume that just because you belong to a trend or that you claim a particular trend or a particular way of, being or writing at this moment that like may or may not be hot that that is like inherently bad Mm. i think that also turns me off because those cats also be the same people that are trying to be famous Mm. (laughs) is this a petty salon (laughs) (laughs) we're supposed to be saving this (laughs) 
Oh my God, I love it. I have been searching for the right segue to get us into the Ross Gay conversation, but maybe it's just, can we please go talk to Ross Gay Let's now? Let's go talk to Ross. I think we need to. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Uh, first question out of the gate. I know you love nicknames. <laughs> can we call you Uncle Ross? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, do it. Do it. Yeah, Uncle yeah, Ross. Yeah, 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 yeah. Doogee is fist Great. pumping. Those of you at home. That's all I want. It's wanted. happening. We're done. We yeah, can yeah, that's we're done. Coming yeah, out here. Thanks for coming out. <laughs> thanks for sitting in this weird hotel room with us. Um, we said quaint is the word, not weird. Quaint. 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 Yeah. Weird can be a compliment, for sure. Doogee stays here. Doogee has to decide. Okay, that's true. We'll leave it up to you. Um, Ross, what delights have you noticed so far today? Wait, I do want to say that one of my friends calls me Unky Sauce. Oh. And that's kind of nice, right? Unky like Sauce. That. Yeah. Unky Sauce. Yeah, so. My, I might that's switch it up good. and do like a Tito Sauce. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah do yeah, it all, yeah. do it all. All right, all right. Um, so the delights today, a um, couple things, many things. I was on the um, bus and I was, me and my buddy were trying to get to this other event and I took him the wrong way and the, the bus driver I, to, I asked her like where blah, blah, blah was. And she said, oh yeah, you should have got back, cut off like, you know, back there. And she said, well, just hang on because we'll go back by there. And, and so she just, eventually we turned around and we were going back in that direction. And she, we got up at one point, we were going to get off the wrong stop again. And she looked in the mirror. She's like, don't, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then the next stop, we were like, we looked up in the mirror and she looked in the mirror and she was like, you know, she just was so, loving with us she just spent so much time like helping us and not only that at one point i was sitting in the you know the section on the bus elderly and handicapped section where you know if you if, um if someone comes on you want to like give them your the space and this older woman hopped up and came on the bus and i hopped up to um give the space and she like touched my arm and said no 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 like stay so she just and so we were all like snugged up in the scenes, you know it was so anyway that's a handful of delights that's adorable yeah also i was walking around and i was kind of um just like oh man it's going on and on i was just getting lost you know i i don't have my phone right now i've lost i lost my phone delight and, <laughs> and i was like walking around just looking for a place to get a coffee um before i was here and oh and i should give you guys some Uncle Ross. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pizza sauce. Yeah, share these. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so I just came across this like little chocolate shop or candy shop. And these are these like vegan gummy. I love gummy things. And these are these vegan gummy <laughs> treats. so cute. And they're shaped like bunnies. Oh, right. Because Easter, I guess, is coming up. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Right. We're going to dig yeah. into these. Thank you oh so much. Gosh. Yeah, totally. And they told me where the good coffee shop around was mm. and blah 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 anyway and i saw all these um these uh, star magnolia trees too somewhere and like near a sort of official like a government-ish building and i and i you know put my face in them so on and on we could keep going oh now my question <laughs> <laughs> i know we're like we wish you would i know um, so your book book of delights <laughs> Is meditating on, uh, you know, everyday, day-to-day -day delights, what it looks like? Um, is it a delight? Questioning what a delight, quote-unquote, is. Yeah. So I'm wondering, do you ever find yourself um, almost performing delightness or tenderness for other people to witness it? Um, 
Oh, that's a great question. Oh, thanks. Do you do that? Do you ever find yourself doing that? I find myself wanting to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I always feel like I don't want to uh, fall into the performance or the play of of it. Yeah. That's such a good question. Um, I mean, my inclination is to say probably not. But I do also know that I, I love sharing my delight. <laughs> and I love sharing my delight more as I realize how, how much I love people sharing their delight with me. Mm. So that's like a, like a cousin to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, I, I won't, I don't think I'll usually be like, whoa, like <laughs> bricks. <you know? laughs> And then somebody's like, do you like bricks? And I'm like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But, but, uh, but it, do, it is something, and even like meditating on it, it does make me more acutely aware of the, the pleasure of sharing it. Mm. And yeah, like, like it makes you want to like elbow your neighbor. And that's my, my sort of feeling is like, man, I really love to like be like, yo, don't you, do you love that thing? You know? Mm. Yeah. Weird. Um, I'm curious about form yeah. and genre. Yeah. Um, obviously, your last book is a bunch of really long poems. Mm-hmm. Um, the new book is a bunch of short essays. Yeah. A couple of which, like, if you just sort of chopped up and like <laughs> wild and jammed and told me that it belonged yeah. to the last book, I yeah. would have been like, yeah, yeah for sure. Catalog. This definitely catalog. Um, I'm curious if writing this book of prose has taught you anything about your long form poetry writing. Oh. Um, and then sort of like taking it a step further, if you've learned anything about like packaging uh, your observations in just like a different form mm. and like being in a different genre and like how that book is sort of received as a result. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm in the middle of a long, like a proper long poem, like a, we're at 40 pages right now. I'm excited to ask you about that later. Really? Okay. <laughs> Good. It's on my mind. Um, I don't know yet. I don't know yet. Um, but I do know that I have the, the inarticulate beginnings of, a, of a, an answer to the second part of that question. And, the, and it's the, sort of the question about um, what the different genres or the different forms sort of allow for. And, and sort of, I mean, maybe there's a few ways to sort of approach that approximate question. Mm-hmm. How you're, whatever you know. One thing is that I write poems like with like this project, I decided I was going to write a, a, um, an essay every day for a year. Just like I had the thing when something's going to delight me, I'm going to write an essay about it. Um, I could never do that with a poem. Mm. You know, there's some, and it's something about my relation, the, the poem for me, the poem's relationship to knowledge that this thing had, is that is different than this form that little essay that little essay i it there was something about it that i could do it i was just like this is a thing that i can do every day like mm-hmm. i can and, you know it was like permissive it was permissive it was like in some way it's like those those a lot of the best of those essays to me are mysterious they they remain mysterious but 
my poems are so grounded and unknowing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk mm-hmm. about oxymoron. They're so, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And that's sort of like, so that like the prospect of writing a poem a day is just like ridiculous because like, like this long poem I've been working on for like four, for some years, you know, and I just, I look at it and I'm like, what are you telling me? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. But these things, I'm kind of like, oh, I see two people carrying a bag together. Let me just think about that for a minute, mm-hmm. for 30 minutes. And then when I'm done, be like, oh, that's my thinking about it, mm-hmm. you know? So now, and that being said, like this idea of like the relationship between, you know, how, how the different forms relate to the mystery for me or how they touch on the mystery. Um, I'm writing this longer book about my relationship to the land that feels very much like a poem and it feels lyric and like I look at it and I think about it in the way that I think about a poem, in a, a long poem. Like I, like I really wonder what it's going to tell me and how it's trying to tell me things, but I don't yet quite know. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, as you just mentioned, this new book is very much the manifestation of this daily practice and discipline of attending to things that delight you um, or maybe beguile you in a delightful way. Um, They're not always super positive things. And I'm really excited by how you framed tenderness and delight as disciplines Mm -hmm. as opposed to something you, some people just have by their disposition and some people don't. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what discipline means to you mm-hmm. and now that that year is over have you taken up any new ones or has mm-hmm. that one endured yeah so one thing is and i wonder if i used the word discipline at the beginning i think maybe i did right um in the preface mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and i'm yeah the rules made it a discipline for me mm-hmm. after i wrote that i started thinking <laughs> i have a i have a <clears throat> i want to have a complicated relationship with that word yeah you know, I played football in college. I was, I played a lot of basketball. I was a basketball coach. Like I have a, um, my sort of, the ways that I came to discipline were often punitive and sort of like martial. Mm. Um, and so like the word practice I'm more invested in. Um, or at this moment I'm more like, yeah, I think it's a practice. Mm. Um, Although, like, I, I, I think the word disciple is does mean something about, like, following. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I like the idea of following something. Um, the thing with that, that whole exercise was that, you know, I think maybe a little bit embedded in, your, in, the, in the question was, are you sort of, like, uh, do you have a proclivity toward being delighted? <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was in your, and I don't know, maybe I do, but I also um, do not, you know, and I feel like, I, like most people I know, um, have and sometimes do struggle with or have struggled with like pretty acute um, um, emotional difficulty, you know, um, crisis and um, which is called being a person. (laughs) There's Um, a word for that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so anyway, the but the practice mm-hmm. of of doing this, I mean, it felt so useful because it did allow me the opportunity to sort of um, like fill out the ground of my my experience and the ground of my imaginative experience, which is to say that I think my experience has often been that the things that are most prominent prominent to me, and I think well, I'll just say it for myself, the things that were most prominent to me were were not necessarily the delightful things, you know, and so. 
as a as a practice to sort of fill out my life to fill out my whole sort of frame of reference um this is this feels like a useful thing you know i think it's i think it's crucial that the ground of our existence for me i should say mine mm-hmm. the ground of my existence is um is fully represented fully imagined and is not simply the terrible basically you know what i mean um yeah so there's something like that you know like to to bring you know the, there's the whole horizon and to and to bring all of it into view um and not to negate you know the shitty mm-hmm. or the horrible um or the structural brutality which is which is um which is among the organizing facts of our lives um also among the organizing facts of our lives is that we are in the midst constantly of of tenderness you know and mm-hmm. so that's like you know um that's the endeavor of the book you know do mm-hmm. Do you uh, are you familiar with Thich Nhat Han? Yeah, yeah, yeah of okay, for totally. sure. Because yeah. I think like the more I got into the book, the yeah. more like I felt like I was reading like a Thich Nhat mm-hmm. Han text. Uh-huh. Can you tell the listeners at home? Yeah, who that is what uh, that is. Like a Buddhist monk intellectual. Yeah. Um, he's like the survivor of Vietnamese refugee camps mm. and um, sort of the leader in uh, like a strain of Buddhist thinking that is like very much rooted in tenderness. Mm-hmm. Right, there are certain uh, Buddhist like practices that are very much discipline mm-hmm. like, in the punitive oriented mm-hmm. way um, and like require meditation with the idea that like suffering is how you achieve sort of the next thing um, mm-hmm. where Thich Nhat Hanh sort of like you know invites you to think about tenderness as a way into <laughs> the yeah. next thing yeah. um, do you I guess like what is your relationship then to that do you meditate regularly I, I mean I I go in and out of sort of having regular meditation um, practices, um, but I also sort of am aware of things in my life that become meditation practices. So, you know, like when I'm gardening, like I'm, Mm. that's a meditation practice. There's times when I'm exercising that I'm like, this is, this is meditation. Yeah. Like if I'm trying to lift something very heavy, like I'm (laughs) focusing, (laughs) that's all I'm doing, you know? Yeah. writing these these essays was a kind of was the word practice you mm-hmm. know that's that's right yeah it felt like today we are going to spend a certain amount of time meditating on what is delightful which is often mm-hmm. is tenderness right. and often is the way that we are often re- is reminding me of the way that we are connected you know Burial. You're right. You're right. The fertilizer's good. It wasn't a gang of dullards came up with chucking a fish in the planting hole or some midwife got lucky with the placenta. Oh, I'll plant a tree here. (laughs) And a sudden flush of quince and jam enough for months. Yes, the magic dust our bodies become cast spells on the roots about which someone else could tell you the chemical processes. But it's just magic to me. Which is why a couple springs ago... When first putting in my two bare root plum trees out back, I took the jar which has become my father's house and lonely for him and hoping to coax him back for my mother as much as me, poured some of him in the planting holes. And he dove in, glad for the robust air, saddling a slight gust into my nose and mouth, chuckling as I coughed, but mostly he disappeared into the minor yawns in the earth into which I placed the trees, 
splaying wide their roots, casting the gray dust of my old man evenly throughout the hole, replacing then the clods of dense Indiana soil into the roots, and my father were buried, watering, watering it all in with one hand while holding the tree with the other straight as the flag to the nation of simple joy of which my father is now a naturalized citizen, waving the flag from his subterranean lair, the roots curled around him like shawls or jungle gyms, like hookahs or the arms of ancestors, before breaststroking into the xylem, riding the elevator up through the cambium and into the leaves where, when you put your ear close enough, you can hear him whisper, good morning, where, if you close your eyes and push your face, you can feel his stubbly jowls, and good lord, this year he was giddy at the first real fruit set and nestled into the thirty or forty plums in the two trees, peering out from the sweet meat with his hands pressed against the purple skin like cathedral glass. And imagine his joy as the sun wizarded forth those abundant sugars and I plodded barefoot and prayerful at the first ripe plum swell and blush, almost weepy, conjuring some surely ponderous verse to convey this bottomless grace, you know, oh father, oh father kind of stuff. Hundreds of hot air balloons filling the sky in my chest, replacing his intubated body, listing like a boat keel side up replacing the steady stream of water from the one eye which his brother wiped before removing the tube, keeping his hand on the forehead until the last wind in his body wandered off while my brother wailed like an animal. And my mother said, weeping, it's okay, it's okay, you can go, honey. At all of which my father guffawed by kicking from the first bite buckets of juice down my chin, staining one of my two button-down shirts, the salmon-colored silk one, hollering, there's more of that, almost dancing now in the plum, in the tree, the way he did as a person, bent over and biting his lip and chucking the one hip out, then the other with his elbows cocked and fists loosely made and eyes closed and mouth-made trumpet when he knew he could make you happy just by being a little silly and sweet. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm going to talk about gardening. Yeah. Um, nah, I, I want you to talk about gardening. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, right. So here. Um, but it's more so about tending to something. And how has gardening and tending taught you? What has, what has, what has that touch about poetry? Mm. And what has um, that touch about revision and failure in poetry? Um, what has tending a garden, tending to create something and sometimes seeing things die touch yeah, about like yeah, yeah. seeing poems fail or mm. not fail and tending to that inclination to keep going mm. great question that makes like a good answer like <laughs> you know you kind of you kind of get i mean the, the question sort of offers an answer but i'll i'll offer some more answer to you thank you yeah <laughs> <laughs> the i mean the first thing is that I could go on about this for a while. The, I mean, let me say the, the one of the first things is like the sort of sensory opportunity of a garden. Like being in a garden, like, you know, very few things require you to put your face so close to them. You know, maybe a poem does, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, like once you're in it, like you want to smell it. You want to taste things. You want to be touching everything. You want to be like listening to them. Um, 
so there is this first sort of like deep study of of something deep meditation on something the other thing is like i mean i don't know where i don't know what is a better sort of um teacher of metaphor than the seed Mm. because like in a very literal way i could give you a seed that is the size of like a speck on this table you know and i could say inside of this seed is a hundred thousand pounds of whatever it's true (laughs) it's true it's actually true you know and and it's true because that seed will make a plant that plant will go to seed. Mm. That's, you know, it's this actual exponential growth. Mm. And it's a thing. And it's also <laughs> this other thing. So it's like, it's the kind of magic that the best metaphors do. And like that mm. we can contain these multiple things. Many things are true at once, you know. Mm. Um, that's something that gardens, you know, being in a garden shows you. Like you are always aware, like sort of interacting with this sort of fundamental metaphorical state. Um, in terms of, you know, sort of studying the processes of a garden, I, I mean, I love that question in terms of, cause you said of how, I think you said of how a poem fails or doesn't fail, mm-hmm. because that's one of the things like with a garden, the garden does what the garden does, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you sort of interact with it, but there are knowledges that are well beyond you, of course. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're called the earth (laughs) of which we are a part. We are an iteration of the earth. Um, So you can't determine everything and, and something might happen that might make you have to like lean differently or Mm. think differently or, um, and I think that's really useful to, to, um, to thinking about how you might compose, Mm. which is to say, you know, the garden teaches you to listen to something that is far more, um, the knowledge coming from it is far more than you could ever imagine. And I think the poem does too. You know, like you have to be listening to something that you don't know, Mm -hmm. you know. That's how I relate to it. When I am writing poems and it's, here's, Ross Gay knows this shit. (laughs) It's like, I don't wanna wanna write it and I don't wanna read Mm -hmm. it. But when there are poems that I write that feel like, oh, I'm hearing something else, hmm. something I don't know, um, that's what I'm trying to do. And I think being in a garden, you know, is, is you learn that, you study that, mm. yeah. Mm. And the other thing is that like studying the cycles, stu- studying how things live and die feels really important to, mm. to um, to making art, to being a person, actually, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think that's useful. Yeah. So Uncle Ross, <laughs> Tito Sauce, <laughs> can one experience joy or delight in isolation? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Tell me more. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm asking. I'm thinking specifically of. Um, Joy is such a human madness, yeah, right? Yeah, at the yeah. end, when when you say like, is joy maybe the joining of yeah. that big sort of German yeah, type of yeah, suffering? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, sort of like, given that, yeah, uh, in the context of that, I'm asking that question. Yeah, and I think like that. I love that question, and I think the part of the um, the thing I end up saying often, and I'm realizing often, is that it's between people that that so much of this delight either 
occurs by witnessing things between people or it makes me want to reach someone, reach out towards someone. But um, when I say people, I do want to say that I mean more than what we think of as people, mm. you know? And like, tell me more. I mean, like a tree, like a tree. <laughs> yeah, like a tree, like the soil, like every creature that we do not see and do not like the wind. Like, you know, when I think of joy, the more I think about it, and that's like that. I'm glad you mentioned that essay because it's sort of like I'm. You can tell I'm trying to like, like theorize mm. what joy is mm. and sort of be able to articulate it. And I do feel like the joining of sorrows. It sounds like a sort of human. Um, what if we join our sorrows? That's sort of the question. Might that be joy? Um, the union of that. Mm. Um, but I do like now that you said that. It does make me aware that when I say that, I want to actually mean joining with every everything. Mm. So like the deep, the deep dealienation, you know, and. And like I, like I said a minute ago, like the first thing is like that we are the earth. And, and, and the first alienation maybe is to think that we are not the earth. And that feels like that's joy to be de-alienated de or to re-become the earth. Um, so, which is, I guess, also to say is that you're never alone. Mm. <laughs> right. I guess, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so uh, and just to sort of throw it back to make sure I understand it, the the joining is less about like your German suffering joining yeah. my joining yeah. my yeah. German suffering yeah. as much as recognizing that my German suffering is tied to like everyone's and every by everyone I mean like every being and yeah thing that yeah. exists in the world yeah yeah this fundamental connection this you know that you know that we are iterations of the earth like a tree is an iteration of the earth. Mm. Like, you know, like the earth is an iteration of the earth. Like yeah. it's like that. And, and so it's that deep joining, um, which I think makes sense that we express it or, you know, like one of the first ways you feel it is like you and I, like I'm going to die. You're going to die. Let's join our sorrows. We will be kinder to each other. Mm. I suspect, you know, we'll be kinder to each other. We will be more tender. You know, I often think that like sometimes I'm like, <laughs> like some annoying thing that I do. I'm like, uh, that'll probably be cute when I'm dead. <laughs> 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 Someone's going to say that. Oh, man, I love that. He was always late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so true. That yeah. happens when people die. Yeah. Those totally. little annoying, weird. Yeah. Little ticks. People little ticks. Yeah. To love when you're become gone. so yeah. precious. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh. So why not capture some of that? In I, the know. Moment now? I know. See, because always dirty when he was around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my dirty <laughs> That'd be fun. Oh my gosh. Um, 14. Joy is such a human madness. So writes Zadie Smith toward the end of her beautiful essay, Joy. She gets there by explaining that she has an almost constitutional proclivity toward being pleased. She is a delight to cook for, she suggests because your pancakes will be the best pancakes she has ever eaten. And she has what I consider the wonderful quality, doubly, triply wonderful in the almost prosecutorially vain and Hollywood obsessed or whatever's the new Hollywood culture of ours, of finding interesting faces beautiful. I love that. Something crooked or baggy, a squirrely tooth or two, hairs where hairs according to the magazines or movies ought not be. 
Let me take a moment to honor and delight in and hover above the birthmark on my father's left temple, which he kindly bestowed upon my left hip in a lighter shade and which makes, in conjunction with the long scar zipping my upper thigh beneath it, an upside down exclamation point. But I have veered, as I am wont to do, from Smith's meditation on joy, which veering also delights me. But that's not here the point. The point is that she differentiates between pleasure and joy. And for that, I thank her. Pleasure, for me, this morning, a perfect cake donut at the vegan bakery down the hill, which I rode to on my bike, the early fall briskness breaking me into a few tears in my bombing. Delight, the word bombing wrested from military discourse to mean going fast down a hill on a bike or skateboard, especially to the vegan bakery. is great, but it is not by itself a joy. And given as I am writing a book of delights, and I'm ultimately interested in joy, I'm curious about the relationship between pleasure and delight. Pleasure as Smith offers it, and delight. I will pause here to offer a false etymology. <laughs> delight suggests, delight suggests both of light and without light. And both of them concurrently is what I'm talking about. What I think I'm talking about being of and without at once, or joy. Smith writes about being on her way to visit Auschwitz while her husband was holding her feet. She says, we were heading toward that which makes life intolerable, feeling the only thing that makes, us worth, makes it worthwhile. That was joy. It has little to do with pleasure, though holding one's love's feet is a pleasure, and having one's feet held by one's love is a pleasure. It has to do with this other thing Smith describes perfectly, if a bit ridly, which seems perfect given as it is a bit ridly. The intolerable makes life worthwhile. How is that so? There is ridiculous, and then there's ridiculous. I prefer the latter, I think. I'm glad that you all are laughing. I think that's funny, you know? I prefer the latter, I think, sitting behind a family tending to their two kids, digging through their carry-on for medicine for the little one, who wears a kind of foam hockey helmet and wails. Was wailing. I think it was Kenzaburo Oe who said somewhere, wrote somewhere, that he wouldn't know what it was to be a person without his son, who has a profound cognitive disability. I have no children of my own, but I love a lot of kids and love a lot of people with kids, who, it seems to me, are in constant communion with terror. And that terror exists immediately beside, let's here call it delight, something different from pleasure, connected to joy, Zadie Smith's joy, somehow. Terror and delight sitting next to each other, their feet dangling off the side of a bridge very high up. Is this metaphorical bridge in the body of the parent? And if so, what are the provinces it connects? Or is it connecting the towns of terror and delight, which might make the dangling legs very high up belong to the mayors of terror and delight, both of whom look, I'm afraid to say, exactly like your child. When Rachel fell to her death, an accident, a slip, doing precisely what you or I did 1,000 times as kids, fucking around, balancing on some edge, trying to get a better look, a little closer, a little faster, a little higher. 
The bridge exists on second thought, perhaps, in the bodies of all those to whom the fallen child is beloved, and in the bodies of all those to whom any possible falling child would be annihilation, which, sorry to say, is all of us. And the slipping child, hand from a rung, foot from a rung, what metaphor the latter, how she seems to pierce us, drive a hole through us. A hole through what? Here's the ridiculous part. Is it possible that people come to us? I do not here aspire exactly to a metaphysical argument, and certainly not one about fate or God, but rather just a simple spiritual question. And then go away from us? I don't even want to write it. Rather this. And what comes through the hole? Now I just want to sit with this for a while, but for the sake of time, I really want to hear about this long poem. Mm -hmm. I've heard you're writing about Dr. J. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And just see, like, I don't know, just talk with us about that and maybe your relationship to Dr. J. Dr. J, yeah. The great Julius. Yes, thing. yes. Yes, um, the third. The third. Was he a third? I think so. Whoa. Second? The second. The second? second? That's amazing. That's like good work. Yeah, good work. Yeah, yeah. Totally. (laughs) Um, Someone I just met told me that they were driving down a road like in bad traffic in California, in LA. And he looked up and it was like Dr. J on the other side (gasps) of the street. And he put his hand out and gave him a high five. (laughs) They like (laughs) high fived in the middle. (laughs) I know it's crazy. LA. I know. I know. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's a I've been working on this poem um and it's really about this move, this layup which I will go on record saying it's the best move in all of NBA history. And it was in the 1980 finals against the Lakers, so that's like um a young Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jamal Wilkes, like a really great a really great um NBA team, probably one of the best NBA teams. Um, and I just, um, am writing endlessly about this 2.6 second move. Yeah. (laughs) What about, you know, I'm trying to think about, um, yeah, like what fascinates you about that 2.6 seconds? The move is, is just beautiful. Um, it's, it's impossible. What he does is actually impossible. Um, so I think it's interesting to watch and to think about what it means to do an impossible thing. Mm. What it means to uh, for Dr. J to be flying. Yeah. What's it mean to fly? Um, yeah. I mean it it's a it's a poem that's sort of meditating on race and nation and the imagination and surveillance, I realize, looking, photographs. Um and flying, you know, and flying. Yeah. He has such an acrobatic style of play. Yeah. And it reminds me a lot of, honestly, how you write sentences in this mm, last book. Oh, and I'm wondering, uh, like, syntactically, you seem very akin to Dr. J for me. That's the best thing <laughs> anyone's ever said. <laughs> Thank I'm you. serious. When I was hearing yeah. you read that last essay, mm. just the way these, these sentences are moving. Mm-hmm. Um there is something impossible mm. about it. Mm. Yeah. Like even ending on a long dash, like not finishing the sentence. It's a definitely like a move that you're not supposed to be able to do. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, like there's yeah. something sort of yeah. about witnessing that impossibility mm. that yeah. definitely lands in the body somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's something that 
it's funny because we're talking about impossibility um, and what the imagination can do, but that up against uh, the part about Rachel doing things we've done a thousand times that seem possible to live for, like yeah, live yeah, beyond, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's an interesting contrast conversation between the two because you are doing these impossible syntactical moves that mm-hmm. seem to be like you, you can't do these things. Mm-hmm. But then talking about a person who've done these things many of times and seem impossible to fail from, but then failed from it, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's, a, it's mm-hmm. an interesting kind of uh, tension there. Yeah, 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 that's good. Yeah. Hmm. So Tita Ross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking about uh, the type of masculinity that you render mm-hmm. in your most recent book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Infinity, mm. but also like throughout the book, you know, yeah. you're, you are... Infinity is the name of an essay. The, uh, the mm-hmm. name of an essay. He's not you just thinking about infinity. <laughs> 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 the whole <laughs> <laughs> the sublime, you know. Um, no, but in that essay, you know, there's a version of max- masculinity that is inclusive of and maybe hinges on a softness that is related to delight. Mm-hmm. In that particular essay, it's prettiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're pretty explicit mm-hmm. about. In other essays, it's other types of softness. Yeah. Um, it feels really interesting that you are sort of enacting and demonstrating a kind of masculinity mm-hmm. as opposed to making an argument about masculinity. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could just like put your finger on the nose and make the case <laughs> for <laughs> a masculinity born of softness, born of delight, born of joy. Um, and maybe to flip that, like what about masculinity, masculinity as it's presently con- constructed sort of precludes that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah, that's a lovely challenging question. I feel like um um well, I feel like um we're probably in the presence of many masculinities most of the time. Mm-hmm. And and uh so I think that's the one thing. And the other thing that I want to say is that maybe we're doing it right now. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Um maybe we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, by which I mean sort of being soft with one another, you know, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, delight and joy. Um, I do feel like there's a kind of, um, there's a, there's a need for wonder for those things there's a need to be surprised there's a need to not know mm-hmm. and i and I'm, I'm saying this for the first time i don't know what if this is right or not um but i do feel like there's a certain kind of um notion of masculinity that is a kind of rigid has a rigid um um devotion to knowing mm-hmm. and um it's as a consequence it's probably necessarily kind of brutal Mm. it's unbending Mm. it's rigid um and you know like one of the things that i realized in that like to be moved yeah to be moved delight and joy and just like you know require the ability and the willingness to be moved and to be moved suggests fluidity, suggests the the opposite of rigidity. Um, and the way, you know, like that's moving to me. Um, 
like that's I want to live my life as one who can be moved um and maybe that's getting getting toward it what do you think yeah I, I think that's true I, I think the I mean for me masculinity is really rooted in like fatherhood yeah, uh, you know yeah. I had a child at a really young age mm-hmm. uh, and so I think of uh, and I have a son who's my second child mm-hmm. and I think a lot about um the ways in which uh the punitive type of discipline we were talking about yeah. earlier necessarily limits um conversation mm-hmm. limits their ability to grow mm-hmm. um in which case, you know, and th- that, that was what was sort of modeled for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and sort of in the shadow of that, you know, how do you sort of conceive of <sighs> this version of masculinity, like yeah. for myself or yeah. uh, which necessarily is a modeling of it for my children. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think that the softness, I, I think there's something to your, like to the movement, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to the, to the softness. I think there is something to unknowing. Um, I definitely want to approach my children. Like I constantly tell them, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, like yeah, I yeah. don't know with an open hand and like, yeah, yeah. I don't expect you to know. And yeah. like the point, the point is for us to figure out together. The point is for us to like have the conversation. Yeah. Um, and I think like in sort of all facets and all of my identity, like I want to be in that place. Yeah. I want to be in the place of the unknowing with the trust yeah. that like there is something or someone there who will like join me to figure it out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And that in itself is a kind of spirit of, of um, a spirit of, of um, collaboration and a spirit of joining yeah. and a spirit of like non-individuated something or other you know, um, which isn't at all to argue that that's, uh, that, you know, that's, I don't know if that's more or less masculine or feminine or something, but it is, I think, happy making. Yeah. And it feels truer. Yeah. Certainly yeah. to, um, myself. Anyway, yeah. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I can't pretend like I know yeah. what the fuck I'm talking about yeah, yeah, most yeah. of the time. I know, so I, know, like, I, know. <laughs> I know, I know. I think of my father who was, you know, he, he was a certain kind of, you know, did his masculinity in a certain kind of way. And there were cracks in that too. And like, I will never stop knowing or remembering or being able to feel the way that my dad, even when we couldn't talk, cause we had a hard time. We loved the fuck out of each other, but we just had a hard time. Mm-hmm. And probably cause we were like each other. And, but he would like put his, he could be sitting like at the computer or something, I'd be on the couch and we basically couldn't talk, but he would sit there and he would like put his hand in my hair Hmm. and he'd like pull my head, you know? Mm -hmm. Which is like such, um, such a, such a tenderness that, you know, it's just like so deep in my body. Like I remember I had a friend who did that to me once Mm -hmm. in a, in a faculty meeting <laughs> and, and I, yeah. And I related, no, it's a dear friend. And I okay. related to him. Like he was, fam- he was family. And, and it was like, Oh, this is, this is one of the tendernesses that we do mm. to each other. Like, um, and it, it was like, this guy was my father suddenly, mm. you know? Um, yeah, he he had he had animal too. Like, yes. I think of like cats, like yes. picking up at the scruff of the neck, yeah, like yeah, that yeah. part of the head. Yeah. Um, that sort of parental tenderness. It's very parental. Yeah, it's so parental, yeah. Mm. <laughs>
Thank you to Tito Sass for meeting up with us in the most Portland hotel I've ever been to. So Portland. Thank you to the staff of McMenamin's Crystal Hotel for hooking it up with the tables and chairs. Shout out to the vegan gummy bunnies that Uncle Ross brought us. Shout out to the homies and the non-homies who listen and rate us. Maybe you'll be one of them. If you were delighted by this conversation, rate us five delightful ass stars and hit that subscribe button, which helps other folks looking for poetry podcasts find us. Lastly, follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send us your questions, delightful or not, to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. Bye. Don't get too cocky though. Gonna show you who's man's cause my crew not steady. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy in the